0: Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. Okay, Luke 24. Uh, We are up in 13, and there's still a lot of verses left in the chapter. Thank goodness. Context of Luke 24 is that Christ has been crucified. He died. He was buried. And then on Sunday morning, his body is missing. There were women that showed up, and they go back to the the disciples, and they they go to the the tomb to finish the rites of burial. They bring perfumes. They bring the, the proper oils, and they're doing that because they know he's dead right? They're not mistaking it. It's not like he was mistaken as dead. And the stone, when they get there, is rolled away. There's a pair of angels. They say he is risen. And this becomes the central work of God for all of human history. It's right in the middle. If you doubt God's existence, he points you to creation. If you doubt his promises, he points you to Israel. If you doubt his love, he points you to the cross. He says, here's what I've done for you. And, the, and we, we, we get there and then we get Luke saying, now behold, in verse 13. He's not done with his beholds. He's got a few of them throughout his book and they pick up their pace at the end. Verse 13 starts with, now behold, the two of them were, travel, two of them were traveling the same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together, all these things, which had happened. So it was while they conversed and reasoned, that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. Luke's giving these images, and he is setting up the book of Acts, you guys. Like he's setting up, this is how the church not only grew and became a thing, but this is how the church happens. And so he puts two people together. In verse 13, we don't get their names. Later on, we'll get one of their names. But he says, of them. And when it, when he's talking about the of them, he's referring back to this group of disciples that the women came back to. So apparently it wasn't just the 11 disciples. There was a number of people gathering and talking. And so two of them were traveling the same day. They're going to a place called Emmaus, which means warm spring, or a place from which living waters come from. It's seven miles, Luke even gives us the distance. So they had traveled quite a ways, like Passover was over and they were going back home. And as they're walking, they're just talking about things. Two believers, they believe Jesus was the Messiah, and they're just talking, and it says all of these things. And that these things would happen to be everything we just read about, including the fact that the tomb is empty. So they know the tomb is empty, and they converse, and they reason. How can this be? And like figuring it out, and this is why it's so important in the fellowship that we address questions, because we use reason with each other, and we apply reason to what we're doing. We use the mind God gave us to do that. So they're thinking, they're processing. It's amazing how we talk about Jesus, and Jesus draws near. And so Luke paints this picture. It's, a del- it's like something you would with the words, but it's something you would hang on your wall. It's delightful that our focus becomes clearer when we spend our mental energies talking and thinking about Jesus. And Jesus draws near. He, Jesus himself, drew near. No cars and no traffic, but these roads leaving Jerusalem would have a traffic jam. And so how how does somebody draw near and you don't see them? Because you're on highly trafficked paths going between these cities. So as Jesus, he's just walking a little faster than everybody else. And he sidles up and he's kind of right with these guys. And they're having this great conversation. So you got some stranger that wants to talk with you. Hey, great. They're happy to talk about it. Again, showing there is, with these two, there's no shame and there's no ashamedness and there's boldness. They're just having a conversation on the road. When two believers live life together, we have conversations in restaurants, standing in line, going places, and there will be people around that hear those conversations. And sometimes they'll jump into those conversations, but to talk about Jesus under your breath is not what these guys were doing. They're talking about Jesus out loud with no shame. And then their eyes were restrained. Again, Luke paints this picture. These two are walking by faith, but not by sight, as we are too. God sets up a world where we don't need to see something to have faith. He's given us things to reason about and talk about. He's given us his word. He's written it down. And those are the things we discuss. And we get together on Sunday mornings. We do it formally even. And then in verse 17, and he said to them, Jesus says, What kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are said, what are you talking about? And it's not that Jesus doesn't know, like he does this a lot. He wants them to say it. What is all this you're talking about? The empty tomb, miracles. And so now he's been listening. He's been walking with them a while and listening to what they say. Again, I just can't help but see that as a body and as a church, sometimes before Jesus reveals himself, He's asking for us to do a certain set of things, which feel mundane, like having a conversation. And then he prods and says, what are you doing? Why are you doing this sort of thing? And then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? Have you not known the things which happened in these days? Are you, are you an idiot? So the fact that he's questioning Jesus's knowledge here is, I think, ironic. But Luke lets us as readers enjoy the irony of this thing. But the fact that they're talking about Jesus in this way, I think a lot of times we, uh, we approach a conversation about Jesus with other people in this tentative way, in this hesitating way. And we lose our boldness, and in that we lose some of the, the oomph behind the message. But when they turn around and say, Have, do you not know about Jesus? Like, really, you're clueless? He puts the question back on the person. And so there's a certain boldness here. And he said to them, what things? He wants them to say it it's important to Jesus that we can share what's happened and that we don't necessarily give a belief system or an opinion or an argument about some word that somebody invented in theology about something, but just, do you not know that Jesus rose from the dead? Do you not understand that? Don't you get it? And what has occurred is the thing Jesus encourages them to talk about. What things, what events, What in history has happened that we care about so much? So he doesn't say what ideas, what theologies, what doctrines, what anything. He says what things. It's interesting what Jesus is coaxing out of these believers on the road. And what an honor, by the way, to be the unnamed guy in this thing. And and these two men walking along the road, one of them was Cleopas. This is the only place that name gets used. So Cleopas is kind of nameless too, but what an honor to be one of the people in the kingdom of God that is first to be introduced to Jesus. The first to see Jesus aren't always the people in the leadership. So they said to him, and this is great, they profess the faith to him. They, they're evangelizing to Jesus. Don't miss the, the, the positioning of this. The, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth who was a prophet mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, everybody knew about this guy and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and they crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Past tense in the hoping. They, their hope has been dashed. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Why would they mention that? Because it was important. Jesus said he would rise on the third day. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. And they did not find his body, and they came, saying, They had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Nobody has seen Jesus yet, but all of the basic pieces of belief are there. Like, they don't doubt that he was mighty in word and dude, that's true. They, their hope has been dashed because they thought he was going to lead a rebellion. To, and the word redeem Israel, the word redeem means to collect what is owned, to buy something back. They believed he was the Messiah that was going to buy back Israel. And then it says certain women also the, the, the testify the tomb is empty. They, t- they believe the angels. They don't doubt that account that the women gave. What you get to the end, and this is the part where the hope isn't there, it's that they don't see Jesus, that they don't hope in Jesus. And that's the only mistake they have. Every other piece here is right on target. Everything's accurate. But because they haven't seen Jesus for themselves, their hope rests in an empty tomb. It doesn't rest in Jesus. And that's the only thing that takes away their hope. When hope starts to get dashed, the enemy wins. And trials can endure for years and people let their hope die out because in a trial it's harder to see Jesus, but it's not impossible. And perhaps Jesus is testing this early church of two people and he's, and he's asking, and Luke is sharing this story to share with the entire church that might be reading this gospel. Can we believe in Jesus based on the testimony and the word of others? Or do we have to see Jesus incarnate So he finds that the reaction to this is expected of all humanity. It would be normal for followers of Jesus to be hopeless. But that isn't what happened, and the church explodes. We know that after 33 A.D., a new religion emerged in a matter of a couple years. Massive, thousands of people get saved, which is where Luke's leading us in the book of Acts. We don't see hopeless people in 34 A.D., we see absolutely on fire people in 34 AD. And this is the thing that confounds historians. Something happened in 33 AD to motivate people to give up the religion of their childhoods, abandon their family sometimes, and create a new belief in Jesus as risen. And it was on the accounts that were given, including this account of Luke. Verse 25, Then he said to them, Jesus says, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and enter into his glory? And at the be- and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. By the way, at, when this is being written, there is no New Testament. What he's looking at is the Old Testament and proving Jesus using the Old Testament. This has to be the best Bible study ever. Just walking along the road and some strange person walks up and you don't know them from Adam. Visually, you don't recognize them. And they just start, well, don't you get this? And he calls them foolish. Like, this is kind of endearing. It, oh, foolish. You guys are foolish ones. To be a fool is to ignore God's word. The knowledge of the holy is understanding, Proverbs nine ten. To be a fool is to ignore God's word. And what Jesus does to this hopeless, I need to see it people, is he says you have to study God's word. That's the solution. And to persist in it week after week, day after day. It doesn't say that Jesus revealed himself here. I think this is amazing. He reveals himself later when they're ready for it. But at this point, with their hope gone, but all the beliefs intellectually in the right place, He goes back and addresses the intellectual side of them, not the spiritual side. And and in doing that, he feeds them. Verse 26, ought not the Christ. He doesn't say, shouldn't I have done this? He says, ought not the Christ. So Jesus does this a lot too. He's referring to himself in the third person. And again, he's simply showing them the word of God. He says they're slow of heart and that's their hopelessness. Their heart just hasn't jumped in all the way yet. They're still tentative. The solution here then is going through this. He goes through all that the prophets have said. I I think it's great that Luke also includes Moses here because Moses is back in the Torah. But he he says all the prophets and then he starts with Moses. In other words, we're looking at the entirety of the Old Testament, not just what we call the prophetic sections. But there were prophets in the Torah too. So again, faith grows by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so he's helping them get their faith. This, this, these are the first two people where he's starting his church with. Peter might be the rock, but these two get to be first. And they're nameless, one of them at least. Reading the word, he starts with ought not, 26. There's an ought here. We see hundreds of indicators of God's examples throughout the Old Testament, hundreds of them. Ought here speaks to the necessity of the cross. Everything you just described had to happen. There's no other way to do it. And this is the price that's paid. Ought there in the Greek means a necessity or something that is right or proper. And one of the the, the versions of that word is to fulfill the law. And I think that's the one Luke's using here. The ought is to fulfill the law or decree of God and the nature itself ought not that have happened. It should happen that way. If you boil water, ought it not turn into steam? to fulfill natural law. And that's how this strange man starts to refer to everything they describe that's making them hopeless. He switches it to an ought. Notice that that's the opposite of hopelessness. If you think this had to happen that way, now you have hope that God had a plan. And so he, again, (laughs) Jesus brilliantly hits exactly where their hope is gone. And verse 27, and beginning at, right? By the way, beginning at the beginning has taken us 5 years. It takes Jesus a walk to Emmaus, right? And he's just uh, I imagine this is a thematic teaching through the Old Testament and he's just bouncing through it. So Jesus is a much better Bible teacher than I am, but that he goes at the in the beginning at and then in all the scriptures the things concerning himself or the Messiah Jesus Christ. It's a topical study. The reason we look for Jesus in the Old Testament is because Jesus looked for himself in the Old Testament. Again, we don't make this up. We do it the way we see Jesus doing it. So when we study the Old Testament, if you're here in the evenings ever, like we are looking for Jesus in every chapter. Where, where is the ought to in this? Like this is part of how it had to happen to fit all these images and typologies and Christophanies. Everything that we see in the Old Testament fits with Jesus and nothing else. Verse 27, And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. If you doubt God's promises, he points you to Israel. Look at what happened in the Old Testament. The nature of God is to fulfill promises. In fact, if God didn't fulfill promises, I don't think he would be good or holy. He has to, by his nature, fulfill promises. So to expound here is to translate and stick close to the text, word-for-word study. The expounding on the scripture is nothing. There's nothing in the scripture that's beyond our understanding, but sometimes we need to slow down and study it word-for-word or expound on it and understand it. So I thought for this morning, because we only have part of a chapter, let's try to go through this study very quickly in about 10 minutes or so. What might this study have sounded like? and just highlight just a few. Again, there's hundreds of situations that point to Messiah in the Old Testament. But let's just point to a few so that we get good at having this talk with people that have lost their hope. So here, we start all the way back at Genesis 3.15. If you want to go through with me, like, I'll wait for pages to turn so you can lay your eyes on these words, a benefit they might not have had on the road to Emmaus. But if you want a Bible teaching from the Scripture, like, man, ought not this have happened? Okay, Genesis 3.15, it's right at the beginning of the book. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Notice the second seed there should have a capital S. It's a proper name, the seed. And he he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. From the very beginning, it's admitted that the seed is going to get bruised. There's It ought to happen. The children of sin and the children of Eve's the seed are going to be in conflict with another time passes the word props up again in Abraham go forward to Genesis 26 actually go forward to Genesis 22 sorry turning my light on now okay we're there Genesis 22 8 and Abraham said my son God will provide himself again a proper name The lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. It ought to be to fit the model of Abraham. Why would the whole story of Abraham and Isaac even happen if this wasn't part of the plan? And then in Genesis 26, or I'm sorry, still in 22 verse 14, and Abraham called the the name of the place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Abraham thought this was such an important point (coughs) that God would provide himself a sacrifice. He named a mountain after it, Mount Moriah. This happens to be the same hilltop that Jesus is crucified on. Ought not that happen that way? I'm sure this is some of the passages that Jesus may have been reminding them of. Do you remember with Abraham how that happened? Now go forward to Genesis 26. There's a covenant that God makes with Abraham. I love this. Genesis 26, verse 4. And in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. There's that seed term again keeps popping up in the Old Testament. There is a plan that God has from Adam and Eve, and it's through Abraham that that's going to get met. Go to Genesis 32. After Abraham, you get Isaac. He dug wells and found living water everywhere he went. Then you get Jacob, the guy who wrestles with God and eventually submits to God. And God gives him a name change. Guess what the name change is? He goes from Jacob in Genesis 32, 28, and he says, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel the one who struggles with God and submits to God. That's the only thing that makes Israel special. But wow, that makes Israel special. They're the nation that submits as a nation to a Lord God. Jacob has 12 sons. Joseph is his favorite son. There's a whole musical about his coat of many colors. And he plants a cup. He sets up Benjamin. And and Joseph sets this all up so it looks like Benjamin stole this cup. And and he says, I'm going to keep this guy as a servant. And Judah steps in for his brother. Judah steps in, the lion. And and in fact, he gives his life in exchange. Genesis 44, if you want to look at this. He gives his life in exchange for his brother, Benjamin. And in Genesis 44, Judah gives up his life. and, And this is love. This is what love ought to look like. We're taught what it should look like. Sacrificial love. So this seed is going to get bruised. God's going to provide he himself as a sacrifice. God will be in this Messiah. And this sacrifice is going to give his love for other people in the same way that Judah gave his life from Benjamin. This is the nature that God wants in his people. Genesis 49. Skip forward to there. Genesis 49.10. Jacob is dying and he's praying these prophecies over each of the sons. And he gets to Judah And he said, there's a lot more to the Judah prophecy, but he says this, the scepter, an image of rule and kingship, the scepter will not depart from Judah, which is great. There's going to be a king that comes out of Judah. But the fact that it won't depart, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes, until peace comes, there's going to be from the tribe of Judah, not just Abraham, not just Israel, But the tribe of Judah, there's going to be a seed with a bruised head that's going to give his life as a sacrifice for all these people, and the law will not depart from him. He'll be a king, he'll be a ruler, and he will be the law. Eternal authority is going to come out of Judah, a Messiah that will live forever. This is those two guys on the road just thinking, yeah, we thought he was the guy that was going to redeem Israel. Why did they think of redemption? Because they've read the Old Testament. They know what it says. Israel and Judah grow in numbers. They make a lot of bricks in Egypt. The favor of Joseph fades and there starts to be jealousy from the Pharaoh. And the Pharaoh says, no, you cannot go out and worship your God. And then God sends a man named Moses, Exodus 12. Moses shows up. He's going to lead Israel and Judah out of Egypt. And this becomes the Passover, the, the the celebration that these two men were just going home from. And this Passover feast from the time of Moses gets celebrated all the way to Jesus. Exodus 12, verse 14. Passover shall be kept as a feast for an everlasting ordinance. It's not just for Israel. It's going to go forever. Wow. So here's an image that won't go away. The image of Passover is this. Blood has to be shed to cover sins. And not only was it such an important concept that God put it in the law over and over and over again, he actually put it into a holiday so that they would teach it to their children every single year. Blood has to be shed to make up for sin, for everybody. Exodus 12, 49, this is not just for Israel. One law shall be for the native-born and for the stranger who dwells among you. It's the law for everybody. Blood must be shed to cover sins. Okay, go forward to Numbers 25. We're skipping over Leviticus again, over and over and over again. Leviticus is just blood has to be shed to cover sins. It has to be shed to cover trespasses. It has to be shed just to get peace with God himself. It has to be shed if you even want to have fellowship with other people in the room. Something has to make peace, and that's the book of Leviticus. It's a book of how to worship God and make that peace so you can enjoy the presence of God. Numbers 25, verse 13. God redeems them and he sets up a priesthood. And it shall be to him and his descendants after him a covenant of an everlasting priesthood. Because he was a zealous for his God and made atonement for the children of Israel, God sets up a priesthood, but it's not just a priesthood for Israel. It's an everlasting priesthood. There it is again. So there's going to be an everlasting king, an everlasting prophet, an everlasting priesthood over and over and over again. They set up a government. They set up a tabernacle. All of this is a reflection of God's plan for for how people should live. The Levitical priesthood is given to teaching the law. Years later, it's time for a king, and God calls his prophet Samuel forward. Go forward to 1 Samuel. New era of Israel's history. They're going to get a king for the first time. They get Saul. It's the one that people wanted. He's a big failure. And then God says, I got a person for you. This is the king that we've been waiting for. It happens to be from the tribe of Judah, from the nation of Israel, from the children of Abraham, which are also the children of Eve. So here's that seed. 1 Samuel 16, 1. 1 Samuel 16, 1, fill your horn with oil and go. I'm sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I've provided myself a king amongst his sons. Myself there is a proper name. It's a title. In other words, God's actually referring to himself. He's not just saying, I'll, I'll, I'm picking a king. He says, I'm going to provide myself a king amongst his sons. You're going to anoint somebody, and now we're going to narrow it from the tribe of Judah down to the family of Jesse, and what will become the throne of David. So not all of Judah anymore. Now we're going to narrow it down even more. He teaches everybody what they ought to be looking for. And this is Jesus' teaching. It ought to be this way. How do you read the Old Testament and not see this? So amongst the sons, meaning David, chosen not due to stature, but because of his heart. In, in Samuel sixteen seven, we see it was his heart that made God pick him. God picks all of us because of our heart, not our statue, not our works, not what we've done. Verse 14, 1 Samuel 16, verse 14. I will be his father and he shall be my son. It ought to be that way. God ought to be the one who sacrifices himself. Verse 16, your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. How can you have a forever throne when David died? And it's because it's amongst his sons. This is called the Davidic covenant. Now we know where to look for Messiah. With the promise of Messiah intact, flip forward to Isaiah chapter 11. It's a big book, so if you just fan your Bible, you'll find it pretty quick. Isaiah 11 verse 1. There shall come forth a rod, or the same word for scepter, From the stem of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of his roots. So this rulership, this kingship that's there is now coming from Jesse, according to the prophets. It ought to be that way. There's a seed, a lamb, a scepter, and now with Isaiah 11.1, we get a branch. Actually, the Hebrew word is Natser. sounds a lot like a Nazarite. There's going to be a branch. Jeremiah 23. I think Jeremiah is after Isaiah, Right? another big book if you just fan your Bible you'll find it Jeremiah 23 verse 5 here's a behold Luke likes to use that word behold there it is in Jeremiah behold the days are coming says the Lord Yahweh I will raise to David a branch of righteousness a king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness on the earth. This is the thing that they were saying, we thought the Messiah was going to come and redeem Israel because there are passages that say that. But they're forgetting the passages where the the seed will be bruised, that God will give himself a sacrifice. So there's these images of Messiah over and over. And as you get into the prophets, they split into two images, a suffering sacrifice Messiah and a king that rules forever Messiah. And these two people are hopeless because they thought everybody wants the king that rules forever, but Jesus decided in mercy to be the suffering servant and give the sacrifice first. You got to do the sacrifice before you have the fellowship. It ought to be that way. Then you get images of the kinsman redeemer in Ruth, the commander of the armies of the Lord with Joshua, the faith of Hezekiah, the builders of Ezra and Nehemiah, the good shepherd of Psalm 23. Over and over and over again, these images are painted for us. Particular timelines, go to Daniel, another prophet. It ought to be like this. Don't you get it, guys? It ought to be like this. There's no other way. Or the whole Old Testament's mistaken. We get a timeline in Daniel chapter 9. This is the timeline that made people hang out with palm branches to welcome him into the city. Uh, Daniel 9, 26. After three score and two weeks, or periods of time, years, shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. He's going to be a sacrifice. There it is in Daniel. And this is during the Babylonian exile. So this idea goes from Abraham all the way to Daniel that the Messiah is going to get cut off. He's going to suffer. Two images of Messiah are there, but it is very clear. And now go to Isaiah again, if you still have your finger back there. This will be our last one. The ought to here is that Messiah was going to suffer. It was meant to be that way. It was always meant to be that way. And to fulfill what he ought to. I would be remiss as a teacher if I did not quote even a part of Isaiah 53. Like read the whole chapter if you're getting bored in the teaching today. Just keep your thumb there and go back to it and read it. It ought to be like this. The prophet said it was going to be like this. And this is what Jesus is teaching them. And in this they get their hope back. Ah, this was all part of the plan. Isaiah 53, 3 through 5. He is despised despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. They even know that the tomb is empty. And they can't get past this because it, was, it, was, it had to be this way. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. He took everything just like God said he would way back with Abraham, way back with Eve in the garden. Jesus teaches them a Bible study, something like that as they're walking back. Can you imagine that Bible study? What verses was he going to? And of course, Jesus is the word, so he doesn't mess up his quotes like he's he's citing it. The entire Old Testament points to Jesus perfectly. When we know that as believers, we become stronger believers. We can walk in the boldness and the courage and the strength that we need to walk because we've seen for ourselves how perfectly Jesus fulfills everything from Moses through the prophets, all of it. The cross was always the plan. God made himself a sacrifice for the sin of the world because God set up the rules. And that was the plan and how it was going to happen. And what he shows us in the sacrifice is his love for us. When we doubt God's love, look at the cross. It's obvious he loved us. All of this tapestry of history was woven together to show you as an individual that God loves you. It was all there for you to see. The only thing holding us back is a a heart that's slow to pick that up. A slow heart or just foolishness. Also in this teaching, Jesus hasn't changed form at all. He's encountering these people as a human to another human because that's how the church operates. That's how it ought to be for the church. If I could just show you a picture of Jesus or bring him over for church on Sunday, would you be more of a believer? Would you just think that person was nuts? We'd have the same problems as any incarnate form of God. Many people doubted Jesus, even though they met him in person. It's not the seeing that does it. It's where our heart is, and it's the word of God that moves us there. And we're told that too. That's how it ought to be. Back to our story, verse 28. Then they drew near to the village where they were going, and he indicated he would have gone further. But they constrained him, saying, constrained, by the way, the word there is like they grabbed him. Can you imagine having somebody teach you this Bible study, and all of a sudden you're like, no, 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 you should stay with us. Like, they want it to keep going. This is the flame of the Holy Spirit starting to get lit in the church. That thrill of just hanging out all afternoon and talking about the scriptures with your friends, all you want it to do is go on forever. And then God says, "Well, oh, that's kind of what heaven is. And when we get together as believers, it's, we only get a taste of it. And it's got to end. All things come to an end here on earth. Verse 29, but they constrained him saying, abide with us for it's towards evening for the day is far spent. Why don't you just hang out with us a little longer? And he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass. I love that Luke in 30, it came to pass. It took time for this to happen. As he sat at the table with them, he took bread, he blessed and broke it, and he gave it to them, and then their eyes were opened and they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. Uh, Honestly, one of the coolest stories in the scriptures. He indicated, verse 28, he indicated he would have gone further. Jesus never forces himself on people. And even in this story, he doesn't force himself to come in. He's never going to bully his way into somebody's life. He's a gentleman. To be quite frank, he's a, he's a good guest. And if he's not invited, he doesn't want to come. And, but they wouldn't let him go. And again, this is the image of the constraining him, this image of like falling at the king's feet and grabbing the ankle. Like Jacob grabbing God and not letting go, right? And that just this, I'm going to hold on to him. It's to insist with force. You are not going anywhere, brother. You're going to stay here tonight. We got a place for you. And then verse 30, he took bread, he blessed, and he broke it. This is not written like the Last Supper. It's just a meal from Luke's perspective. But the meal is the fellowship that they're having to eat together, to dine together. They've studied the Word together. They've kind of had their flame ignited a little bit. And then they're eating together after all this fellowship time. And the breaking of the bread, I don't think it's a coincidence. Knowing of Jesus is not knowing Jesus. And they knew of Jesus, but they didn't know Jesus. And there's no explanation as to how it happens, but their eyes just open and they see it. And it's because they've been studying the word, they've been eating food. And then, and, and then as soon as they recognized him, he vanishes from their sight because it's not about sight. And, and it's a miracle that Jesus could veil his glory to the point where the, he couldn't veil it anymore the fellowship and the study of the word made him impossible to hide or conceal anymore. And they start to see him. And they knew him. And this is the whole plan. It's ought to be this way. Again, if you doubt God's love, he points you to the cross. And these reminders, these things. In verse 32, I like this. They said to one another, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? Didn't you feel that? And we get from Luke the first glimpse of what the Holy Spirit looks like. This is what it looks like. Now, were their hearts actually burning with a real flame? No. This is an image. But there's something that's hard to describe with words when you get together with other believers. And you love the Lord and you realize they love the Lord. There's like, I want to hang out more. I love hanging out with you. I think it's even for shy people to just be in a room where believers are talking with one another. You're like, I just love to be in this room. This is the people of God hanging out. This is the burning there. The Greek means to set a light or to be on fire, actually. So it could be a reference to either a light getting brighter or a fire, fire getting brighter. The recognition is done together. There's not one person that gets, re- this is two people together that Jesus reveals himself to. And they're starting to just burn. Notice that they burn before they recognize them. They burn while they're on the road. Didn't you just love that Bible study? Didn't you just love just that brief glimpse of going through with the scriptures with this guy? And then you're like, wait, this is not just some guy. This is Christ. And again, Christ even talks like he abides in us. And I love that the word abide gets used in those passages. Verse 29, abide with us, stay with us. We want the burning heart as long as we can keep it alight. And the desire of a Christian in the Holy Spirit is the desire to be as close (laughs) to Christ or those who carry the message of Christ as we possibly can get. And people say, I want to feel the Holy Spirit in my life. And it's like, have you ever hung out with another believer? Do you know what your burning heart feels like? If you haven't had the Holy Spirit come upon you, we need to pray for that. But there is a, a, a power that comes with that where he's just like, man, didn't you, did you not, did our not our hearts burn? First of all, they said to one another, did our did not our heart burn within us? They communicate that after the fact, not while he's with them. So how did how did that one person know that the other person had a burning heart? So they're sharing those things and they realize it together. It's not just me getting excited; we got excited. And so, verse thirty-three, it's not just one of them that rises up. They rise up. They do it together. And again, Luke is showing us the very first seeds of the church. This is exactly, and everything's perfect because this is how it ought to be. So they rose up that very hour. They don't wait. And they return to Jerusalem. Like we just got done with a seven-mile walk. We're going to wake up in the morning. We're going to turn around. We're going to go right back to where we were. Think about this. They, they literally turn and do a, do a 180 and go back the other direction towards where the believers are. Now, that's the longest commute to church recorded in the Bible. But I, a lot of times I'll hear people, and they're like, yeah, I moved to this place, and there's not a good Bible study church there. And it's like, well, there's a Calvary Chapel right across town. Well, that's a 45-minute drive. And it's like, I know people that drive 40 minutes to get to Bible teaching. No question. When we lived in Ohio. We would try to get in that car every Sunday and drive an hour to get to Columbus. Just to hang out and get let our hearts get ablazed again. Till we found some Christians down at the nursing home and we hung out with them. But we wanted our fires to be alight, and I don't want to go through life not gathering together. So, verse 33, they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven and those who were gathered together. There's more than just the eleven disciples. This is a little body, eleven people plus a few more. Verse 34 saying. The Lord has risen indeed. This is where we get that on Easter, by the way. The Lord has risen. But there's something between the Lord has risen and the Lord has risen indeed, biblically speaking. There's a burning heart that comes between those two things. I can know that the Lord has risen, but I don't know it for myself. I can know of Jesus, but not know Jesus. So to say he has risen indeed is to say something about your own heart. Man, I've seen him. I know him. He has appeared and has, so they're saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. So at this point, Simon Peter has seen him. Not just, you know, so he's starting to show up all over the place. And they told about the things that happened on the road. This means that the walk on the road, they're meeting with Jesus. It's some sort of new body, like physical, you can touch the hands and he eats and breaks bread with them. But that's, there's also a Jesus over with Peter, meeting into, and he's revealing himself all over the place. I think it's fascinating right now. There's this horrible argument that the Holy Spirit doesn't move today like he did with the disciples. It's, it's called cessationism. It's ridiculous. And I listened to the first two. It's, it's absolute nonsense. And part of it is it's the belief of a dead church. If you don't gather together and study the word together, you never see Jesus active. And suddenly, well, where's Jesus? He must not be active. They know about Jesus, but they don't know Jesus. And here, when they get together, they're immediately, these two nameless people are hanging out with the 11. Like, talk about welcoming new believers to your fellowship. Do you believe in Jesus? I know. I've, I've, we've met him. Yeah, I've seen him too. He's risen indeed. You're brothers. We're brothers and sisters. We're going to hang out together. And they told about the things that happened on the road and how he was known to them in breaking the bread. We get another key element of the church, sharing the stories. Uh, Here's how we encountered Jesus. Here's where we saw him. Mike's leg got healed, right? We got a friend coming out of nowhere to hang out and pray with Mandy's dad. We, We have just thing after thing that keeps happening. And they share those things. If they don't share them, then the glory of God doesn't get spread which is a responsibility of the church. So the two travelers may know nothing about the Last Supper, but in announcing this, they confirm everything. They confirm something that they didn't know the conditions to, which blesses other people in the body. Have you ever seen that happen? Somebody comes in and says, man, I had this happen, and this, I saw this, and here's this thing, and somebody else in the body goes, man, that's, I think that fits perfectly with what I've been experiencing. And you see that working of the Holy Spirit amongst the faithful, because it's there. So they announce that this happens. They talk about their burning hearts and the work of the spirit in their lives. And they recognize the nature of Jesus and his plan. And their first instinct is to go seven miles walking to get back with the believers. If you ever lead someone to Christ, the first instinct should be to get with the believers and the church has forgotten about this. Well, you can just stay home and watch some videos or listen to this YouTube series. Nonsense. Come hang out with the believers. Study the word with the believers. The recognition immediately draws them back to the family of Christ because they can't be with Christ in person. He's left them as soon as they recognize them. Now he was known to them is the passage that's there. The fellowship of the saints is not talking about the world. It's talking about Jesus. And this is a beef. We can get overboard with this. Sometimes in the church, people are like, I will talk about nothing but Jesus with anybody. I will not talk about sports. I will not talk about entertainment. I will not talk about anything. Well, that's called not being a good friend, right? That's not having good fellowship with people. It's putting your will on other people. It's way too far. But here's the other thing. When it says how he was known to them and that's what they talk about, we should also prioritize that kind of talk when we come to church. We're not here to waste our time. We're not here to just always talk about sports and entertainment and politics and news. Those things might be great just hanging out, but that's not the point of church. The point of church should be drawing people into those conversations. It's hardest with new people that don't get our culture. We actually do talk about the teaching now and then after the teaching. When it's on our heart and our heart starts to burn and we can feel that movement of the spirit, man, I want to talk about it. Some people don't want to share things after the sermon because they're like, I'm just repeating what was said in the sermon. We'll repeat it. That's what we do in the church. Man, that verse stood out. I heard this. My heart was stirred when this passage was talked about. And so he was known to them, not in visually seeing him, but in how believers talk to one another. Again, I love these verses. I'm happy we got a whole Sunday morning for just these verses. All these things we see believers doing, building their faith, building hope, in fellowship with one another, this is having Christ abiding amongst us. Where's the kingdom of God? It's among you. It's right there. Then you get believers that say, well, I'm having trouble seeing Jesus. I just don't see him active. I don't know where he is. And the proper response is, is, well, are you doing the thing? Because if you're not doing the thing, why would you expect the result? Right? It's really simple. Verse 32, the hearts are burning. They're stirred unto it because they're looking through the Old Testament. Verse 33, they're gathering with one another, actually making that more important than anything that was back in Emmaus. They prioritize fellowship over whatever else is going on in their life. Verse 34, the Lord is risen. Are you talking about God? Are you sharing his word? Are you expressing your testimony with other people? When's the last time you've shared your faith and how you found Jesus with somebody? Verse 35, they told about the things. Witnessing, bearing, talking about Jesus being at work, listening to other people talking about Here's the happenings that are going on in our fellowship. Right? Dulce made her way back home. Uh, Rose's tummy is feeling better. Like, we write it on the board, but we need to talk about it too. But if Rose is gone today, maybe her tummy got bad again. We need to pray for her. She's with Grammy. Her tummy's fine. Okay, good. How he was known is part of what they talked about. Sharing the testimonies, sharing the intimate journey of faith, not just always doing the light talk, but sometimes doing the deep talk. And then finally, I have to add this one, in the breaking of bread with one another. They eat together. There's a trust when you eat with other people. It's more than a pattern, it's a church. It's the way the kingdom works. So if you're not doing the things and you show up when you feel like it and you're not prioritizing anything and you never talk about Jesus and you never eat with other believers, why would Jesus show up in some other method than what he's given us the prescription for? This is how we engage and how we feed the burning hearts In fellowship and abiding with Jesus, this is how we reignite. And it ought to be that way. Deuteronomy 19, 15. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. It's always been in the law. There's no mistaking it. And then Jesus shows up with them. Again, he shows up after they do the things. Verse 36. Now as they said these things, as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace to you. Okay, John points out that the door was closed. Somehow or another, this, this transfigured body, though it be physically manifest, just appears where it wants and takes So we don't really need transportation, I guess, in heaven. You just show up where you want to show up. Guess where Jesus chooses to show up? Right where his believers are hanging out talking about him. But they were terrified and frightened, yes. And suppose they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your heart? I think this is just, I'm seeing things. First of all, if I see things, the likelihood of other people seeing the exact same thing that I'm seeing, like having multiple insanities happen with a similar vision, that's not possible. So the way you know you're not insane is you share it with people and they say, I see that too. So in the things of the spirit, if we're not talking about the things of the spirit, we might just think we're nuts. And so I'll say, I say that every time I tell my potato story, I might be nuts, but I confirmed it with my wife. I'm like, can you count the potatoes? Can you count the potato, the people? How did the potatoes turn into the people? And how did that happen? If you don't know this story, it's a long one. We didn't make enough food one Sunday and we could know exactly how many potatoes go on a tray when you put it in the oven. And then we counted the people and everybody had potatoes and the numbers didn't work. So I went over to Steph and I'm like, do you count what I count? And it was because I might be nuts if I just keep it to myself. But if I share it, I can be like, okay, I'm not nuts. Did you put extra potatoes on the tray? Nope. Put them four by five or whatever fit on there. When we do these things, I love the end of verse 36. Jesus just says, peace to you. The great manifestation of God's presence isn't fireworks, It isn't people jumping up and down in the spirit. It isn't disorder or chaos. It's peace. The great pie in the sky that humanity can't quite find is just contentment and peace. And I think this is one of the problems of emotionalism in the church. We think that we gather to get ourselves revved up. That's not what's being talked about here. They gather to share stories about what Jesus is doing and their hearts get stirred and then Jesus brings them peace. All is well. All's good. All's as it ought to be. All of it's according to plan. Jesus is on his throne and we know that because he works in his kingdom with power and authority. But they were terrified and frightened. This can be scary to people and frankly I think this is what growing up in a a Baptist environment they're terrified of the Holy Spirit and to the point where like we don't even want to recognize some of that stuff because it becomes kind of scary it's wild it's God's power it's not our power and when people start getting healed or people start doing this or frankly tongues becomes one of the most divisive things in the church there is a degree to which people are terrified or frightened when the Spirit actually starts to move amongst his people but what a blessing when it does that you know that there's peace so they supposed they'd seen a spirit. Maybe we're just seeing things. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? And then in verse 39, what's the solution to those doubts about this new thing called a church that has power in it? Behold my hands, my feet, that it is I myself. Again, same using the Greek, but the same twist of phrase that we saw back in the Hebrew. He would give he, would give he himself a sacrifice. It's me, I'm actually here. Look, it's actually me, I'm not a ghost. Handle me <laughs> and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Luke's responding to a very early heresy in the church is that when Jesus returned, it was just a spirit. And he's re- and Luke's pointing out, like, look, I interviewed people, there's a room full of people. As a historian, he's recording this story to counteract that. It was not just a spirit, it was not a common uh, vision that people had together as a group it was not some sort of group insanity that happened he actually said handle me and see be part of it a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have now he's going to leave in flesh and he's going to leave us with the Holy Spirit and that's part of it but the Holy Spirit is God too it's just Jesus coming in spirit so he's teaching them that don't be afraid don't have that It's the same him and same body that was there three days ago. The reason he's doing the hands and feet, we know this from the story with Thomas, is he's like, look, there's still scars in my hands. But amazing healing rate, even better than Mike, right? This guy just healed in three days and he's cleaned up. When did he take a bath? So something, there's a transfigured body here that is both physical, but of a different nature than what we have in our bodies today. It is not one that meets or sees corruption. It is an eternal body that's there. Verse 40, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Oh, cool, look at the scars. You guys think I'm nuts when I want to see scars, but hey, Jesus' disciples wanted to see them too. But while they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it, and ate it in their presence. Why does food keep coming up? We read right past that. At every movement of God, there's food involved. There's something to it. He refutes the first challenges. There is, it is a resurrected physical body, which is greater than the, the spiritual heresy that was out there. But while they did still did not believe for joy, That's the, that was the confusing one to me on this. But, they, but while they still did not believe for joy, how does that work? How do you not believe what Jesus said and it's joy that makes you be there? Part of this is the it's too good to be true mentality. This is too awesome. I can't accept it right now. It's too much to handle. And Luke lets his readers be there with them a little bit, I think. This enthusiasm sometimes, well, it was just a summer retreat. It was just a camping thing. And what I felt, you know, singing praise songs by the campfire. And that was just, uh, that's not believing because of the joy. It was so awesome that maybe there's something missing to it. So they miss the belief. They miss the rational convincing because their emotions are too out of control. And Jesus' response to this is to give them time. He actually has a meal with them instead. Maybe we should just eat. Let's have some food. So, the reluctance to believe without confirmation is, I think, called reason. When we, we question our emotions, our joy, and we allow the possibility that that might just be us being overly excited about things. But it's a full miracle to actually come into that with reason and recognize that actually was Jesus. And, and again, showing them that he's hungry, that he eats food the food actually disappears. The other piece that maybe he did the, is there any food is he'd traveled with these guys for three years. He brings them back to the routine. And for three years, they ate food together many, many, many times over and over and over close to a thousand times. They had meals together. Well, 3000, if you do three meals a day, why is this important? Because it's a recognition that habit and routine help to overcome emotionalism not believing for, oh, this is just too awesome, this is so great, but to say, let's just get into a routine. We're gonna to eat together, we're gonna to be together, and what he wished them was peace at the beginning, what he shows them is peace as a teacher. Let's just eat a meal. And then he said to them, verse 44, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things, there's the must be, again, fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scripture. To combat hopelessness, he brings the first two to the scriptures. To combat emotionalism, he brings them to the scriptures. And there's nothing wrong with joy. It's when joy gets in the way of belief or can be an, an impediment to belief that it's like, let's get back to the scriptures. To study scripture after the crucifixion allows for a few new notes to get added as you go through the scripture. There's perspective while I was still with you. I taught while I was with you, but then he goes on to teach them now that he's back with them. And again, he's establishing the church. This is what the church does. It seems like there should be more to it. But when Jesus is modeling it for the disciples, there's not more to it. This is what it is. And he walks them through and he shows it to them. He, he, while I was still with you would be the gospels, right? That's four accounts of what he taught while he was with them. And now now as they go through it, then he goes through the law of Moses, that's the Torah, and the prophets, and the Psalms concerning me, the books of wisdom, the books of prophecy. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Did they not understand the scriptures before? Biblically speaking, no. Until you place Jesus as a framework on the Old Testament, you really don't get the Old Testament. And it doesn't make as much sense. So the understanding that comes there, the point of the Bible is to understand what it says, to comprehend what it says. I remember reading the scriptures when I first got saved. I didn't get much out of them. And most of you have expressed something like that. I read through that whole book and I just didn't get this or that or this out of them. So part of the church is helping people go from blurry reading of the scriptures to clear reading of the scriptures. And some of that means mature believers have to take up the responsibility of leading Bible studies and helping new believers to see it with clarity, to comprehend it, and to understand it. Because this is our tool. Where the Gospels share what Jesus taught, the epistles show the comprehension of it. And this is the New Testament. So you read Hebrews, it's a, it's a discourse on the Old Testament and how we should read the Old Testament. You read Romans, same thing. All the epistles, they're simply going back through it and helping us get understanding and comprehension of all the pieces getting put together. And then in verse 46, then he said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day. Verse 26 ought to be that way. Verse 44 must be that way. Verse 46, it was necessary for it to be that way. You see, Luke, what he's emphasizing here? had to be this way. He's emphasizing how central that cup of wrath was that he was struggling with in the garden. There's no other way. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You're going to start here, but you're going to go out. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued, I like that word, with power from on high. So they believe, they've shared with each other, they have fellowship. Jesus meets them there, but then there's going to be work to do. And there should be um, that. It's not, there's a should that goes with it. We have an ought to in addition to how we study. In his name, under his command and his authority, not in our own name. To all nations, more than just Israel. In fact, when he sent out the 70 disciples, some people matched that number to the list of nations in the Old Testament. That there were, there were groups going out to all of those. Beginning at Jerusalem, that's a starting point. He actually gives them very specific instructions. Where to start, when to start, what they're supposed to do. And the when to start is you're going to wait until the power shows up. You're not going to go out and do ministry because you feel like doing it. Because they've just met Jesus. They've abided with Jesus. This is amazing. But Jesus tells them that you're going to wait until you have my power to go do this ministry. Don't just run out and do it. Behold, I send the promise of my father upon you. The promise of his father is that there'd be a Holy Spirit that would guide them and show them. And so finally telling them to tarry and wait for God to endue, which means to clothe or wear or put on clothing. So you, if you go out and try to do ministry and you're not empowered by God to do it, you're going out naked. And that's not a good thing. That's a bad way to go do ministry. You'll scare people. So we don't do things on our power and our ability. We do things and we wear and we put on the endowment of God. We are endowed by our creator. And we go out and we do things. Similarly, the people of God believe. They set aside proper worship. They study the Bible. They eat food together. And we wait on God and we're ready to move when he tells us to move. That's the plan. Can you wait for that? Can you have peace and contentment in that plan? Can you know that you're doing God's work because you're doing the things you've reasoned this out and you see this is what God says to do. And I think God makes us wait just a day longer than we think we can do it. Just push it out as far as you can to be endured, endued with power from on high. This is not the kind of power that we can generate. We do not psych ourselves out from ministry. We recognize what's going on. And we move forward. The two on the road have not left the room. Remember, they walked back to go be with the disciples. They're still there. It's not just the 11 in this room. It's the whole church, It's not just the disciples. It's everybody. And all of Luke is written as a documentation of the church that's going to grow in the next few years, historically. Luke is sharing this not just for the 11 disciples in the room, but to wait for power from on high is for the entire church. It's for the other people in the room when Jesus said it. It's for Luke's audience as he writes it. Many of them have seen and experienced power from on high. We are all witnesses of this because we at least know what God's done in our own heart. And if he hasn't done something in your heart yet and you still are foolish or you're still slow of heart, wait upon the Lord for him to do things. Do the things and wait for that to happen. Verse 50, And he led them out as far as Bethany, It's just right the next hill over from Jerusalem. And he lifted his hands and he blessed them. Man. In Acts 1-3, Luke kind of skips this right now. In Acts 1-3, Luke points out that Jesus made these appearances for over 40 days to hundreds of people. The church is gathering because they've all met Jesus and they all start talking about it. And this is the nature of it. So the point of him, him returning to this place, this... Posture here is that of a high priest raising the hands and putting a blessing on them Jesus then acts as high priest here and the blessing comes prior to the power They're not the same thing. This is a big deal God blessing the church and bringing and wishing peace upon them Is not the same thing as the Pentecost when they start speaking in tongues They're different moments and I think sometimes believers experience the blessing of God but not the power of God And there's a waiting period that's there. Sometimes the power of God comes after abiding in Christ for a season of time. Maybe it's 40 days, maybe it's 40 years. But if God wants to use you, are you ready for that to happen and will it be there? And then verse 51, Now it came to pass while he blessed them that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. He goes the way he comes. Conclusive. The church is now to wait for power. So the power isn't just when Jesus is with them incarnate. It's going to be, he's going to show up in the Holy Spirit and that will carry the church through the next 2,000 years. They're gently coached away by Jesus. We started with hopelessness. Now they have mission, purpose, abiding, fellowship being gathered, food being eaten. And Jesus has taken them on that journey just by sharing the word of God with them. This is why we emphasize that so much. And they worshiped him. And they return to Jerusalem with great joy. Again, before the joy was hindering their faith, now the joy is being birthed out of their faith. And the joy emerges. And we're continually in the temple praising and blessing God. The worship and the praise and the prayer are a consequence of Jesus' encounter in our life. They're what we do because Jesus is in our life and we're there. So be it. So they, they do all these things. Amen, by the way, is just the end of the book, the end of the Gospel of Luke. This is how it is. And just the end result of Jesus and the encounter with Jesus, verse 52, the end result of it is joy in the manifested in worship, and they're continually in the temple praising and blessing God. What do they do while they wait for power? They go to the temple and they praise and they worship God. What shall we do between now and when the power of God gives us a mission to do? Well, do what he's asked us to do and play play those things out. Prayer, by the way, is part of the worship at the temple. It's a huge part of it. So there is a great and reasoned certainty that falls upon the believers as they abide together. The amen here, the end result of knowing and following Jesus is not mourning or hopelessness. The end result of Jesus is verse 52, worshiping him with great joy, verse 52, returning to Jerusalem, which is being obedient to Jesus, praising continually, verse 53, and blessing God unashamed. Remember, they're at the same temple that three days ago just killed Jesus. Now they're worshiping God publicly and boldly in that space. What do you do while you wait for the power of God to move hearts? Go proclaim it everywhere. And, they're, and it says they're doing it every day. This is not just on the Sabbath. It's not just on Sundays. They're making it a regular habit to go down there and bless God and to praise God publicly amongst the priests that just crucified a guy. This is not going to go well for Stephen, right? This is going to be a thing. But thousands of people are drawn to these folks that just have joy. What happened here? And Luke's doing his best job of trying to paint that picture of What exactly happened that made a church explode in the Roman Empire? How did this occur? And it occurred in these very, very simple ways. I love this stuff. And I can live my life by this. This isn't beyond any human being to live like this. And to just be in a constant state of prayer, praise, adoration for a God that loves us and wants us to be with him. So we welcome that. Amen? And we're done with the book of Luke. We'll start with Acts next week. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you for who you are. We are reminded that you are all over in the Old Testament. We're reminded of the hundreds of prophecies that pointed to you. Lord, what happened to you on the cross was no accident. It was not of human invention. It was not of human intention. But it was the great work of God unto salvation and redemption of your people. Lord, I thank you that there were always people that were welcomed as strangers into Israel. And as we come to you as strangers, we want to accept the sacrifice you gave for us. We thank you that you welcome us into your family as a bond servant, that we can willingly choose to give our lives to you and our service to you. And in that, your blood covers us as one of your own family. Lord, we thank you that you did not leave the disciples with, without hope. Lord, we thank you that we can find hope in your word and we don't need to miss it due to joy or enthusiasm, but we can have joy in the end. Lord, help us to study your word with with intention and reason and conviction because we are desperate to have you stay with us. Lord, help us to grab onto you and say, why don't you stay with us? Stay with us today, this week, this month, for as long as it takes until you return, Lord. We just want to cling to you and, and keep you close and abide with you. Lord, as we go upstairs to break bread together, bless that. Uh, be with us in fellowship and Lord, help our hearts to just be stirred and stirred ablaze by each other and about a, with our conversations today. Lord, help our words to not be idle. Um, help us to not be religious about it, but at the same token, to be intentional about talking about your word and your promises in Jesus' name.